You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This is Atlanta Legacy Podcast with your hosts Adam Keith and Matt Dye. We've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. Matt, you're going to join us, and let's get this show going. I'm here. I'm here, present and accounted for. Um, like Adam said, we've got a lot, a lot of topics to cover, um, a lot of kind of current topics, and I think that's going to grab a lot of people's attention. And um, one of those, we'll go ahead and just dive right in, like you said, is, is understanding minerals throughout your habitat and why it's so important to have minerals out, whether that be in your soil or in the form of mineral blocks. And we're going to go through the importance of those um, today here first. So Adam, talk to me a little bit about... Some I guess new uh, regulations. Yes, uh, kind of. You may be wondering. Okay, it's turkey season. It's food plus season. Why the heck are we talking about minerals? But obviously, anybody that's ever put minerals out know that in the spring, minerals are a great attraction to get pictures of deer, and um, deer really need them. And uh, but there's been some new regulation changes here in Missouri. They've actually added a couple more counties. I think three counties to CWD zones, and uh, those three counties are not like the other counties the other ones are up north central missouri and these three are on the southern border right next to arkansas right Right next to arkansas and if you followed cwd i guess news you know that arkansas had a big there's been a big news story down there with the finding of cwd and so there's been a lot of regulations going on a lot of testing going on and now here in missouri it's trickled across the state line and they've added stone taney and ozark counties to cwd zones haven't changed really the regulations yet, but that is most likely going to come out in the summer. Kind of anticipating them to outlaw baiting um, and also supplemental feeding. Supplemental feeding, so corn, rice bran, whatever it is you put out, and then also mineral. Uh, we're kind of anticipating that they're going to have that outlawed. So you think about that, it's being outlawed, and you're like, well, what happens to the deer? How are they going to get mineral? Of course, there's all kinds of natural mineral licks throughout the throughout the landscape but um there's also some, some other ways to get those minerals out there that are legal um and honestly they're kind of a roundabout way more beneficial in my opinion to the yeah, whole absolutely. ecosystem so um and, and this kind of covers i'll let matt start diving into it but that's kind of the gist of it that's why we're talking about it some new new counties added to cwd zones and now we're going to try and uh, give you guys some new ways to if, if you're already in one of those states where you can't bait, put out supplemental feeding or minerals, this may be right up your alley. Um, but if you're a new guy kind of scratching your head going, what do I do? <laughs> this might be it. Hopefully this is it. Uh, I think it's first uh, important to understand that minerals are transferred from the soil. They're naturally occurring in the soil. And then they're transferred via the plants. The root system take them in. And then they're transferred as a, as a consumer, whether it's a deer or human, eats that plant. Those nutrients are then transferred from the plant, well, from the soil, through the plant, to that deer's body. So that's naturally the way. And, and if they're not consumed, they're transferred into that plant. And then when that plant is killed or reaches maturity and it's an annual and it dies and it, and it starts, it basically breaks back down in the soil. It's right back in the soil for the next plant. It leaches up. right back down to the soil, which is why, you know, we are talking about cover crops and why it's so important. That's that's why they're important, and it keeps them up at the top layer of the soil so that the the next root system can can access them and transfer them, whether it is to a consumer, right back into the soil. So that's that's how minerals are transferred, or you have a mineral block, whether it's, you know, a primary salt component with the, with the added minerals in there, or it's a naturally forming... Um, and you're placing those out there, 
in the in the woods or field edge, whatever it is, and then the deer are licking those and consuming the minerals through it. So I think it's important to also talk about that minerals are e- easily transferred in the soil when your pH is at 6.5 to 7. That's very neutral pH, and that's when you get the most mineral transferring to your plants. So when you're taking a soil test, you got to make sure that your your pH is balanced because if you're doing all this work and trying to make sure you got the right you know, number of minerals in there and you're trying to reach those those numbers, you, you might not be doing the, the best job if your pH is, is really low or it's really high. You've got to make sure you're kind of in that middle ground because it's going to transfer those nutrients a lot easier. So, so for example... Um, you know, they've heard of me talk about my family farm for years and all the food plotting and how the soil was terrible over years of not knowing any better, um, of plowing, disking, and, and already having naturally acidic soil. And so if you looked at one of my soil samples, you'd say, wow, there's like no calcium here. Um, there's no calcium and and you're like, okay, I need to get some calcium or, or there's no, uh, there's no phosphorus. You wouldn't go out and, and it's very, I mean, the pH is, we're talking 5, 5.1, stuff like that. And so if looking at that, we wouldn't say, okay, I need to go grab straight phosphorus, spread it. Because right. even though I spread it, it wouldn't really do that much because it's already acidic. It's not really balanced soil. So it, it wouldn't be able to move through the soil. And, and, and so that's kind of the example I think of is the importance of liming and getting the soil back to its a balanced pH. Basically, there's a lot more in-depth we go about it. Cation exchange, this and that, soil. Um, we could go into tenfold this about soil health and everything. Um, but just to keep it easy, basically balance your pH and then your nutrients can transfer so much easier. And... Is that all you? Go ahead. Yeah, that's all. I, I'm just sitting over here. We're in a new location today, and we did not think this through before we set up because <laughs> I feel like I'm taking a test and I'm like trying to cover myself so you're not looking you're at blocked. my answers. I'm, yeah. I'm looking at you like the side. So I'm going to let here. you talk and I'm going to rearrange myself. Oh, you do, you do what you got to do. Um, so I think it's really important that we're going to we're going to cover like the three main elements, nutrients. Um, that basically you're, you're trying to balance out in your soil, and that's nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. But the important part is what it does to not only the plants, but for the animals as well, as they're taking in these minerals and nutrients. What is it actually doing? Why, why is it that important? So we understand how it happens, but why is nitrogen important to a plant? Why is phosphorus important to an animal? So first off, nitrogen, it's, they're, um, in a plant, they increase the palatability with adequate levels of, of nitrogen. So that's going to lead to like a, a thinner cell wall, so there's not, not as much lignin content in that plant, so it's a lot more palatable. Deer get um, a lot more out of, out of it and so become a, a high... Um, are you good over there now? I'm good. <laughs> it's become a very attractive food source. Um, and that, of course, again, increases the protein production. And when we're looking at crude protein, you know, for, for a deer... A buck specifically, they're needing just to balance and, and maintain their body condition, about 16% crude protein in their diet. Fawns, growing fawns, are about 20%, and lactating does are about 22%. And that's coming up. We've actually seen a couple of pictures on social media of fawns that have already dropped um, here in Missouri. And, I actually and saw somebody post one on social media of a, of a, I've seen this in the cattle world a lot, but a two-headed fawn. It was Still, stillborn. Yeah. yeah, I saw that too. Yeah, pretty crazy. So we've got fawns that are actually out there lactating right now, and um, not fawns, does. Oh gosh, did I say that? Yeah, you said fawns. I'll Boy. clear that up. That was a. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna throw people in we all have, sorts. We have super of fawns out here. Yeah. Does that are already lactating. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um, so it's really important to understand. Okay, what the crude pro- crude protein levels are that are necessary for these. Um, you know, when you're talking about nitrogen and increased palatability and increased growth, I immediately think of just real world, like for guys to relate, trying to find ways for people to be like, oh, yeah, I yeah, know what you're yeah. And you think about all the times you plant like a, let's just say a grass, some sort of grass species, a, a wheat, and you're like, ooh, I'm going to go get some urea or the highest form of nitrogen, nitrogen yeah. I can get and put it on that. That way it just shoots up. Yeah. That's one thing about driving down the road and you see all these fields that, you see strips where people have been driving, and then there's and it's just real dark green. And then there's a strip where they didn't get it, and it's a little lighter green. 
It's because of the nitrogen that was available, caused that plant to grow quicker, got more nutrients in it. And at the end of the day, it tastes better too. Yeah. So nitrogen for animals, they're really important for their building the proteins, which is going to increase their muscle and tissue growth. So you're going to have larger deer and then healthier deer as well as it increases the amount of proteins that are made in the body of the, the animal. So then as phosphorus, that's the next important mineral that we're always worried about. For plants, it's really important to have this for the fruiting and seed production within the plant. So we're talking about food plots. Like let's say if you got a, a clover perennial plot, you know it needs to have the adequate phosphorus levels to be able to fruit and then make additional seed to reseed itself and to increase the viability and the thickness of that stand of clover. Um, so phosphorus levels for plants is really important, again, for seed production and fruiting. And animals, it's the... Muscle, bone, and tissue growth, it really aids in promoting the, um, let's say, antlers and and teeth um, for, let's say, a buck. You know, if you don't have the adequate phosphorus levels, you're going to see, you know, not as good antler production in the long run. Potassium for plants, you've got regulates water and nutrient uptake, so increases um, the photosynthesis capabilities of transporting those nutrients. It's making the glucose which is going to aid in the overall production of the entire plant. So more forage available um, for animals. you got nerve and muscle function and regulate sodium and fluid in the body. So I go on. There's so much data with this. I know it's kind of boring, but it really just helps to understand, okay, why am I taking a soil sample? What minerals are lacking? How do I increase the transporting of minerals from the soil with your plants and your food plots, and then what does it actually do? So hopefully that gives a quick rundown of, of what those elements do for plants and for um, animals as well and their functions and physiology. So I know that's kind of quick, but it's an important rundown to understand it all, understand the whole process of why, why healthy soil and having the right levels of each of those minerals is important. So to loop that back to where we started was the CWD and, and the importance of, of minerals. And a lot, I guess for people that aren't, they're, they're new to the whole habitat management. They're just a deer hunter that goes out and buys a bag of corn or something or a, bag, a mineral at the mineral block at, at uh, Walmart and dumps it down on the ground. And then somebody tells them the game warden says, you can't do that anymore. And he goes, okay, so what do I do now? You think about, okay, so you get those minerals in a different form. It may not be in a package block at right. Walmart, but you go to a MFA or a fertilizer plant, a farmer co-op, and you find those similar minerals and trace minerals in the form of a more granular form, I guess, and, and you spread that on your soil for the for the plants. So you're saying it's it's almost like a fertilizer, a, a powdery... It's exactly like a fertilizer. And what you're doing, you're spreading it with like a... a hopper spreader mm-hmm. across a food plot let's say or you've just you've got a burned area and you want to increase that with the native warm season grasses and you got a lot of forbs in there and you take this out or you know just like you would a lime buggy or, or whatever you're just applying it to the the ground that you know a lot of deer are foraging on a food source and that's soaking into the ground plants are to intake that through the root system and then the deer get the minerals like they would have if it was just a block so instead of Going to a block and licking it. Now they go to a food plot and they eat the vegetation that's growing and they get it. They're, they will still acquire the the minerals just in a different form. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I yeah, think I, of, you know when I think of let's just this is just an example of maybe your head spinning because you're like how can I use a a block or some sort of mineral block as a fertilizer? What everything dies right ne- right underneath. Mm-hmm. In this little circle of where I put my mineral, it's dead. Now, when you, when you go back, look at the edge where the vegetation first starts growing versus another three foot past that. You'll notice this. I noticed this just the other day checking cameras at my farm. You'll see this circle where nothing's growing because there's so much salt from and the minerals. And we're talking a foot right around that mineral block. Yeah, and then just outside of me, you start seeing green vegetation. Look how dark green, tall, just beautiful that looks. And then look past that. And, and there's always a huge difference because... It's it's close enough to tap in and get get those nutrients and those minerals from the whatever the mineral it is, and it's growing way better than anything outside. They have access to that, 
And But if it's too close, it dies. Same thing with fertilizer. If you take fertilizer out and you dump it in a pile, it's going to kill everything right there. Right. But if you if you give it its adequate amount, not too much, not too less. Bingo. You're right in the wheelhouse. So Right. And and you, it's a very, very clear how the plant responds to it. Mm-hmm. And again, that all increases palatability. And, and we just ran through a list of what it does. And now you just gave minerals to your deer herd in a legal way. No matter Completely if you're legal. Iowa, Illinois. CWD zone in Missouri. Mm-hmm. You've improved the soil health. You've improved the the forage, and you've also gave minerals to your right. wildlife. Improving the forage is going to then probably increase the amount of deer that you're seeing, though, as well, because those plants are healthier, probably healthier than you know. Let's say maybe your neighbor. So your food plots are healthy. You got a lot more deer coming in, and you're still supplying those minerals in again completely legal way. It's all around a kind of a win-win. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Is that pretty much wrap that, up that segment? That's pretty much wrapping up minerals and, I guess, the importance of them in your habitat and how to do so um, with the new regulations out. If whether you're in one of those areas. In one of the areas local to us or, you know. Fortunately for us, we're states, not in one of those areas. Yeah, so we can not. still put right. we can still put out mineral and um, any sort of supplement feeding. And it doesn't, I mean, there's a chance it could creep up our way, but... It may be a while, so. Mm-hmm. This is, it's amazing how many states, though, are, are really putting this ban out on minerals. Um, so I know that there's a lot of people affected by it, um, and everyone wants, you know, successful food plots. So, again, this this will kind of help um, both fronts there. So another sure. really current topic we've got going on in our area is flooding. If you've been on the news, watched the Weather Channel, they, gosh, it was last week we received... 13 inches of rain throughout the week? Yeah, we got thir- three inches on a Wednesday, and we got on, from a Friday to a Sunday, we got 10 inches. Yeah. And then we turn around, and we're supposed to get another three to five, and some places more than six that. Six to eight. Yeah. Um, so it's been, you know, before we dive into that, let's just say thoughts and prayers to all those that have been effective. There's been some just horrible scenes, bridges torn out, houses swept away. Uh, there's been some fatalities. It's just been a horrible, horrible thing. Um, so thoughts and prayers to those that have been affected. Um, and it's just, it's, it's that time of year, but there's all, I, I can't help but think, you know, you hear a lot of people like, what can I do? Can I go down there? And, and then you start from the habitat side of it that we're in, you think, what can I do to the habitat or what has changed in the habitat? What's I, going on I think to cause a, this right. catastrophic flooding? Like you, you got to help, but think. Were, the, were these floods going on before there was the news, before there was cameras, like in the 30s and mm-hmm. 1900s? Were these floods going on? And you look at some historical data, and no. They they certainly weren't as a as a degree, or there were, there were habitat, obviously, changes that have happened since then. And the research is coming out now at the benefit of, of that habitat, that nat- natural habitat, that basically it wasn't as... Um, What's the word? I'm like? Destructive. These catastrophic. Yeah, but I mean, lives and, are being and, lost, and a lot of that could be due to the fact of the population increasing. And, mm-hmm. and but there's there's also something to be said about the lack, the habitat loss, and the change in habitat to new species that don't act as much like a sponge, and they kind of shed water a lot quicker, and and water moves across the landscape quicker, causing these floods. So. So before we, I guess, as we start to dive into this, let's go ahead and paint the picture of what it was like before, uh, basically before settlement, before the Ozarks were really, uh, I guess, populated, and what it is now, and then what we can do to get back to kind of how it was beforehand to to control some of this flooding and, and huge, I guess, increases in, in rainfall and and erosion and everything like that. And, then, you know, I read an interesting article uh, a couple of days ago. I think it was actually after the first rain we got, first three inches and the threat of all the floods coming over the weekend. And it was really just kind of ways to prevent floods. And, and it was talking about some research done out of Iowa. I think it was Iowa State, but it was mainly Mizzou. And uh, it was talking about all the flooding. And then uh, basically kind of... One stat that really stuck out was Missouri gets 138 million acres feet of rain in an average year, and that's more than the Colorado River Basin. 
um, out west. Uh, so you think about that river out there, and then you think about all the rainfall we get here in Missouri. So we get so many inches, let's just say, so many inches and so much rainfall that we got to do something with that. And and we've kind of tur- turned our landscape into a landscape of <laughs> we've let some things go. I'd say neglect. Yeah, neglect. That's a good word. Um, and we've also planted species that are not great at being In- a sponge. Infiltrating water as, and, as it's... And I think of some of those. Uh, I think of some of those um, videos by Ray Archuleta on YouTube. Uh, infiltration tests. And yeah, such. and yeah. he's talking about infiltration tests with, with let's just say fescue uh, with fescue versus diverse native grasses like gr- the prairies. And uh, you knew you they knew we were going there, didn't they? <laughs> I think so. They hadn't heard by diverse, <laughs> diverse yet. But anyway, and it's amazing the difference between how much water can infiltrate through diverse species of native grasses and forbs versus fescue. And here in the Ozarks, fescue is everywhere. And if it's not fescue pasture, there's a few crop fields. There's not many, but there are a few. And then there's also, of course, oak trees. But then we have the lovely eastern red cedar. Mm-hmm. And the eastern red cedar has just taken over. A lot of the areas, you know, we talked last week about glades. I'd say it's, it's important to talk about what it was prior, before those eastern red cedar had the encroachment. What what was the landscape, honestly? Oh, like? I'm getting there. All right, I'm jumping ahead. I'm trying I'm just, to I'm trying to paint trying to this beautiful picture, yeah. but it's taken a while. Um, and so Matt talking about how there's does. cedars and um, these areas of these glades that were once, I guess, populated by diverse native grasses and forbs. Were everywhere in the Ozark Mountains. There, a lot of south and west facing slopes were covered by th- these native grasses. Open, uh, open ground with with short native grasses or tall native grasses. Short when you compare it to oak trees growing everywhere. Um, and those in that ecosystem is magical for water infiltration. They act almost like a sponge. So instead of water, let's just say three inches of water hits those areas. That's native grasses and forbs. It doesn't rush off and run downstream and cause a mudslide and run down a creek into a river and into a lake and swell up and flood people out. It just takes it in, holds it there. It either takes it in the plant or it kind of it slowly works its way almost as a filter into the water table. But now those areas have been taken due to ne- being neglected, have been taken over by eastern red cedar, which takes in... 40% of water, you know, 40% of the water that lands on a cedar tree either is taken in by the tree or it evaporates. It never reaches the soil. But when you think about cedar trees, they they take over the entire area most of the time, especially in these glady areas. And so the basically there's nothing growing underneath them when they get so thick. And since there's nothing growing underneath them, the water can just completely wash through and go down to the creek and and Matt, you wanted to talk about that, so I'll let you dive in and let me catch my breath. <laughs> I think it's important. You know, let's say you've got an acre of glade, an acre of just natural prairie grasses. You've got the, the, the high diversity like we've been talking about on a slope. And then you've got an acre of cedar. And make that comparison to when rain falls. And basically the, the root system, the root structure that's already there on the prairie grasses versus the cedar, the entire acre is... Underneath the soil is a root system, the way it grows, and that's going to infiltrate and take in the rainwater versus a cedar thicket where you might have a hundred densely packed cedar trees, um, like a field cedar. You know they've got the the wider canopy, but you only have a hundred tree trunks with root systems underneath them. The root system completely different in that one acre of native grasses versus that one acre of cedar. And you're going to have a lot of water not being infiltrated and rushing down those because we're pretty steep. We got terrain differences. It's going to rush down and cause flooding really rapidly. And one of the biggest things about that is the cedar tree only has one type of root system. When you look at these diverse natives, there's huge root systems, really deep root systems, tap roots, and fibrous fibrous roots. And another stat on that article I mentioned was the absence of native vegetation increases runoff by several hundred times. What it was, um, exp- what they experienced prior to 1880s. How what was that figure again? Say that it again. It says absence of native native vegetation increases runoff by several hundred times 
what it was or what was experienced prior to the late 1880s. So let's go back to that one acre cedar comparison. In that cedar comparison, that one acre is going to experience a hundred times the amount of runoff as the other acre of native warm. And that's just grasses. one acre. One acre. Extrapolate it, that it, out to the entire Ozarks. Oh my gosh! And now you understand and, the the massive flooding that we're receiving. Right. So you think of all the acres that have been lost to cedar encroachment over the years since that that figure eighteen eighties, um, and and then not only not only cedars, but then the amount of fescue now that's in the in the um, habitat as well. And again, those that filtration test you talked about with Ray Archuleta, and throw that on top of it. And then human development with just impervious surfaces, whether that's a roof or a roadway. So let's go back to before, after, and and what we can do to prevent. So let's just look at all of Missouri. In the Ozark Mountains, one of our biggest things is loss of glades. And before, it was native grasses and forbs. Now it's cedar trees. Mm -hmm. So to get... To help with the flooding, we got to get back to those native grasses. Yep. Which, as we talked a bunch of times before, cut those grass or cut the woo, hey, hey, cut hey, those now. cedars, and you can use government program get back glade restoration and get those glades back to what they were. Mm-hmm. And that's basically cutting out all the all the cedar trees. And now let's look at Men, Missouri, Northern Missouri, Eastern Missouri. There's crop fields. A lot of these places were. Tall grasses, native grasses. It used to be old prairie. That's old what it prairie, was. and now it is crop fields. Mm-hmm. And these crop fields, there are some farmers doing it, but there's still a large majority that don't use cover crops. So Correct. They they plant something in May, April, May, June, and they harvest it in the fall, and then it sits barren, barren and, and all winter long. A lot of times they're long. disking and, and tilling that soil again and ripping it, and it's just exposed soil. So it's just exposed soil, and you make that comparison about the infiltration test, and Ray's done a good job of, of showing how soil that's been dissed over and over, that water just sits on top. It doesn't naturally infiltrate through the, the it's layers. It's not porous. Correct. It, it, like no-till drilled soil that's taken care of properly. Um, or it, soil it, that's just never been d- even just never planted. Been dissed, it's just right. native prairie soil. Right, right. So you look at all them those acres that have been transferred from prairie then to cropland and we've just uh, created a landscape of that's built for flooding yes yeah we've we built a landscape that might as well be a sheet of concrete Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. we don't we're destroying soil health because we're creating soil that's not porous through crops and and disking and not cover cropping we've also allowed things to take over the southern part of missouri that don't really help and they they basically outcompete everything that creates a sponge-like habitat. So, and I think it's important to say, okay, no, we don't hate crops, we don't hate you know humanization and this and that. But I think it's just important to note that these changes have occurred, and it's not just Missouri. You look across the entire um, United States, and I'm sure there's people um, in Virginia talking about you know complete forestry devastation and and erosion control this and that whatever or you know you're in illinois and you're talking about farmland and and the farming practices that are used there and you're just nodding your head like yeah i see that and i see that you know we don't hate farming we don't hate again the humanization and um you know infrastructure it's just the fact of you know making a point saying you know this is what's happened over the over the course of many many years but there's ways that we can improve now having the knowledge of it to minimize the devastating floods that we're having, and that's cutting the cedars. That's planting cover. You know crops, what I think of? I going think back of to native warm season grasses. When we're and I've got three in that art, same article. They had three steps to prevent flooding, mm-hmm. and uh, I think of when it comes to habitat management. You and I really try to help basically anybody, anybody, whether you have twenty acres, ten acres, two thousand acres, whatever. But the one thing that we always talk about is using every acre. Correct. And now you look at that in the state of Missouri, and there's these acres that have been kind of, minus the crops. And they in this same article, it talks about the crops increase in 2006, 2014, I believe, because of high crop prices. So mm-hmm. they were going in and plowing under native grass, basically CRP-type fields. 
right, for right. more crops. Mm-hmm. Um, but they believe that's going to go away, and they're trying to encourage, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but they're trying to encourage going back to those native grasses. But um, And we always talk about managing every acre, and this is one of those things where these acres in the Ozarks especially that are kind of neglected, they're glade, they're rough, They've we've allowed cedars to take it over. And it's like if we can get back to where we manage every acre, we think about every acre. Um, so if you're a landowner of those 500 acres, you're really focused on trying to manage all 500 acres or figure out ways to, as we've talked, try to find what's going to improve your property the quickest. So instead of planting a food plot, maybe it is like last week, his biggest step is going to be going back to the glade restoration. And if people start getting that mindset of understanding the the true value of these glades and and other ecosystems that are created to be almost filters and sponges for water and and those same areas provide so much benefit for the wildlife it's just it's just something that hopefully through through this podcast through whatever education we can get out there to raise awareness of of managing these these areas and getting back to where we can hopefully avoid these catastrophic type events you know we're not ever going to be able to control mother nature and how much it rains and this and that but again, like you, like you just said, we can't just, control her, but we can control the way we manage, react to it. Exactly, and I think you know, among the devastation, you know, hopefully, again, we're we're sharing some knowledge of okay, what we can do and everyone can do on their property because, you know, you, you hear the figures about how much public land there is versus private land, and private land way outweighs public land. And if we can kind of come together and educate some people, um, you know, there, there's a difference that can be made. Um, whether it's just wildlife or, you know, helping to minimize the amount of you know, flood damage each spring that occurs. Um, you know, cause it, it all matters and it all, it all intertwines itself. Um, so I think it's really important to increase the habitat. Um, and then again, look out for one another and, and the damaging effects of, of mother nature when we change and manipulate natural ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And not, and not do things that you know, I think a channelization. Unfortunately, I had a neighbor landowner upstream of me that we the Bryant Creek mm-hmm. kind of yeah. winded through their property, and it, naturally, and they decided to go through with some excavators and bulldozers and just straight straighten the creek right out. And you mean it, speed it up? Yeah, <laughs> sped it up and dump gravel upon gravel upon gravel all through downstream, basically mm-hmm. the bend in the creek right there next to the to the uh, home base. And so that was kind of one of those things. And one of my favorite hats that I wear all the time says we all live downstream. And it's because of hopefully getting people to be more aware of that. And this mm-hmm. is something that I think is a good message for that. Um, but let's dive in. You know, I, I talked about that article. Let's, the three ways they said to prevent floods um, or to hopefully control a little bit of the flooding issues. But um, number one was converting crop ground that was once native grasses and forms back to natives. And they're not talking about all of it before you start screaming and saying, what in the world? <laughs> I got to eat Talking two. about these areas that weren't really great crop areas in the first place. They were a lot better native grasses and forbs. Maybe they're a little more elevated or elevation change. But due to the high crop prices, we all got carried away. And we're like, oh, I can plant corn here. Talking about those areas um, to getting back to native grasses. And then... Number two, in the, in the crop areas, um, planting cover crops. So there's something growing through that basically late summer to the next planting in the spring. So there's something always growing, and that, I guess, prevents erosion. It pre- prevents the, the soil from being washed away. Um, the water, uh, a heavy rainfall to hit that and just slide right across the top of it like a sheet of concrete. So planting cover crops. Number three was riparian uh, corridors needed restored and they basically served as a filter of waterways and uh i want to touch on that real quick because this was a kind of an aha moment for me many years ago and i i had a friend who worked in the wetland um contracting business they'd go in and and restore um wetlands or or construct them again um, for mitigation reasons anyhow um there's a project that came up and they're working on it and and basically this creek flooded all the time I mean, it was it was yearly. It flooded. There's always damage. And they were contracts come in and and improve it. And everyone knows the floodplain. You look around a creek, and you know there's the level ground around it, and you've got like you know your sycamores, your willows, those wet weather, um, button bush, wet, wet. I said wet weather, wet soil um, plants. 
Yeah, Buttonbush, you got uh, Deer Tongue, Wild Rye, and many other types of grasses that typically grow in these areas. Anyhow, I was like, so what are you guys going to do, and what, what's a natural way to, to fix the problem? And he goes, fill in the, the, the channel. I said, you're going to fill in the channel. Why are you filling in the channel? Don't you need more water in there? He goes, what's not happening is the ground around the creek, the floodplain itself is not being used to slow down the water. You've you got people who have now migrated into these sensitive areas that are, are built and designed to manage and infiltrate these waters that come up in, a, in, a, in the right timing process. Um, and now people are trying to build on them, and, and really they need to be pushed back away. They need to respect those boundaries, and they're not going to have the flood issue. So they actually raised the creek bed a little bit, and that allowed water to be infiltrated in those floodplains. And so basically downstream, where there was more urbanization and stuff, years down the road, they didn't have the flooding because the floodplains were respected, and they raised that creek level and allowed the ground around the creek to infiltrate as the waters rose. They used the, the vegetation. Correct. And they had to go back and plant. They had to, one, they had to cut some trees, plant the right trees, and then seed the right grasses, cool season wet weather grasses, and, hey, fix the problem. Kind of amazing. But it, it shocked me. I was like, you're going to raise the level of the creek bed? I, I don't quite get that. But it makes so much sense. Now, as I've learned and educated myself, I see that floodplain was not respected, but it has its process. And it's called a floodplain because when it floods, that's when it's needed. You know what I mean? Yeah, it sounds... And sounds I, simple, I'm just sitting right? here going, add one more project to our list of, of projects <laughs> at the home base. And, and, and uh, you know, we've talked... In the past, I don't even remember episode three or four or five, something or podcast three, four or five, somewhere uh, in there. We were one talking through about, ten. Yeah, <laughs> we talked about the home base and all the projects we had going on. But this three is another four. one. Add this one to it is that we're going to be doing some of this water waterway ha, uh, vegetation restoration, where we're going to be converting some of these areas. <laughs> and honestly, there's been a lot of fescue creeping in mm-hmm. along the creek banks, and we're going to get that stuff killed off and get it back to some. Um, wet, I guess, water, and wet soil. Some of those that we vegetation. talked about earlier again was the the, the wild rye, the the deer tongue. We've got rushes, um, and what were some of the other ones, Adam? Button bush, button bush, um, sycamores, um, willows, and those are the type of plants. Adam's getting the other ones that we named off earlier on a different sheet of paper. Um, those are the type of species, though, that are going to help infiltrate. They've got the root systems built for that type of... When you said wild rye, he was meaning like Virginia wild rye. Yes. Um, there's uh, bushy blue stem. Uh, this one shows some fox sedge, uh, soft rush, path rush, green bulrush, smooth beard tongue, Ohio, Ohio spider wart. I laugh at some of the names they name plants. Oh, I, know. I don't know how they came up with them, but... Anyway, there's a, there's a whole guy list back of... in the 1800s. Yeah. He's like, I'm going to name this thing so... Ohio Beard Rush Lady. <laughs> Beard Rush Lady. I've never <laughs> yeah. heard that one. Yeah, that's a new. So, uh, well, I'm glad they got to name it, not you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, I, I think that's just that was something that we've talked about. Matt and I have talked about it all week. Not just, I mean, we've actually dealt with it firsthand. We kind of live in an area, we live in a, ta- uh, a town. Unfortunately, and uh, we do. Um, we still live in town, but uh, there hadn't been a whole lot of flooding affect us that way. Um, but when we went turkey hunting, what day? One day, Monday. Um, Monday. We actually had to put a boat in across a little creek that's almost always dry, except for during the spring. And we put a put a John boat in and walked it across in chest waders while two guys sit, camera guy and Matt sat um, in the boat. All my brother and I ferried it across, and they drew the short straws on that. Yeah, one. and. Uh, so I mean that that was in an area where you never see you hardly ever see water up that high, especially for that long. Well, I was we were talking earlier, and that creek, ninety percent of the time throughout the year, it never even has a drop of water in it. Yet this creek system is in most places twenty thirty feet wide 
a complete gravel bed. So you're like, where'd the water go? What happened to the water? Why throughout most of the years there's not water here? And then it floods, and you're like, holy cow. But that creek used to hold I, water. used to hold water. Yeah, sure did. And actually, my dad shared with me that my granddad used to catch fish out of that creek. Not big fish, but he would catch a little smallmouth and, and perch out of it. And I can't even bear the... Th- I, I can't even wrap my head around catching fish out of that thing because it's bone dry most I mean, of the year. dry. 100% yeah. dry. And that, again, just goes back to the... The, the many different things we, we mentioned before about the habitat changes, you know, how humans are impacting how we're managing the land, how that changes water and how it flows through um, the landscape. And, and, you know, we've changed things. And the other thing we hadn't mentioned is downstream 50 miles. This is going to change quite a bit. But, you know, there's a, a huge lake that's been put in since your granddad was fishing. But... You can't point the finger just at that. There's many other reasons. And, um, you know, I think it, this is a perfect time to, to address those issues and see how we can improve our management strategies in and around, um, whether it's a riparian area, um, a creek system, or a hillside that's just choked out with cedar. Cut the cedar. <laughs> There's Adam's simple answer. Cut the cedar. Is there anything else uh, on that yeah. before we move well, on to the next topic? I, I, think, I think we... I've covered all my notes on that yeah, topic. I think we're good there. Um, in the past couple episodes, eight and nine, we've talked about our high-diversity food plot mixtures, and, and we've been oh, getting... Oh, I know where we're going. I was sitting here going, I don't remember the notes. You've got your computer open, and I'm... Mine's busy doing the podcast, and so I'm like trying to figure out wh- what's Where's the next going step. with this. What are we? And I remember, and I'm excited about this, and this is oh. something that's super, super cool. I remember finding this. Oh gosh, somebody told me about it. Honestly, if it's your brother. No, even before then, four or five years ago, a guy, uh, a guy that actually worked for NRCS, told me about oh, okay. it. Oh, okay. And I was playing around with it, and I'm like, this is this is really cool, and this is something that th- this is one of those like we have no affiliation with them. None. No affiliation with this website. Never met uh, these guys or not. But it's super cool. And if you're planting food plots and, and even you're toying the idea of of uh, diverse species and, and you have certain goals, this is a website you ought to visit. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I'll just dive right in. Thanks for the introduction. Greencoverseed.com. Again, that's greencoverseed.com. And we're talking about our high-diversity food plot mixes and not not how we build them, but this is a tool that's going to help you build. If you're new to the whole cover new, crop right. and, and diverse, diverse species, species right. and I mean they have stuff even here for spring um, species planting, and you know you just go to this website, you go to the uh, start a mix or what is it, the what smart, smart mix tab, and then you continue as a guest, yep. and you basically just start clicking and. Adding in your uh, even zip code. So I put in my zip code for the family farm, and it tells me that the uh, I'm frost-free from, on average, April 18th to October 15th. And then the projected precipitation. Through your growing period that you've already designated as well. So you can anticipate, okay, I've got, uh, his says, 13.23 inches of rainfall between... Uh, May 10th and August 20th. That's our growing period that we're designating for this summer annual food plot. Um, it, the tools in this, what are we going to call this? I'm going to call it a cal- food plot calculator. Is amazing. It's honestly, it's I could play on this thing all day long. Yeah. But you go and in, it, and then just for zip code, it gives your average annual precip. Yeah, um, and then. So we've clicked in. I, I'm just playing around, and I clicked on what what three things that I, I'll go back and just yeah. just so I can see it. What you start out with is, and it, honestly, this to me, when I saw this, that this is the first step you do, I already liked it because it asks you for your goals, your first three goals, and creating a mix, a cover crop mix for. A lot of this is probably farmland. But yeah. we're doing it for food plots. This, this place is actually out in Nebraska. Nebraska, right. Um, and, and so you look at, there's, I think, 14 or 15 different goals you can click. I've clicked increased soil organic matter, weed suppression, and compaction breaking. 
There's other things like supplemental grazing, supplemental hay, uh, track benefit, beneficial insects. Um, Nutrient cycling. Yeah. Erosion control. Nit- nitrogen fixation. So I clicked on those three, and I'll go to the next one. Um, but what you can do with those different options is let's say you've got um, three food plots in there in the bottomland. You know, they get a different um, mixture than you will in an area that's been dissed for years and years and years. So you want to break up that compaction. You're going to have a little bit different of a mix um, for those areas that have been dissed versus your other new food plots. So you can create an unlimited amount of um, mixes for the different goals that you have, whether it's per food plot or for your farm or, you know, your buddy's farm, or you've got multiple properties and you've got different goals for each farm, you can build your diverse mixtures. And there's actually, it's almost like a dashboard that lights up as you click through. That'll tell you if you're reaching your goals and how well you're reaching your goals as you're adding in these different species. And so now, and now the next site where Matt's talking about the dashboard, it gives you four different types you can click on and add these plants to your mixture. And there's legumes, grasses, brassicas, and broadleaves. And so I'll just, I'm just clicking on, uh, oh, I first started on legumes. And uh, I'll just click arrowleaf clover. I like arrowleaf clover. Uh, actually, I'll tell you what. Um, let's, let's continue. Right at, right at the top is... Uh... I, I got a little got. carried away. I was still stuck in fall mode. So let's go to spring mode. Yeah. Let's just see what. Right at the top, you got. Sun hemp. Boom. And now, right here, as you click your first one, there's a button down there that says, do not show this pop-up again. Let smart mix auto adjust the seeding rate for this mixture. I highly suggest clicking on that because what that's going to do as you're adding new varieties and species into the mixture what it does it calculates how much you should in relation to the other species so you don't have like super heavy sun hemp and then you throw in cow peas and you have very few cow peas it already generates a per pound per species in that mixture it it calculates all that for you it makes it super simple you can't build a wrong mixture basically with the way these tools kind of walk you through um, you reaching your goals so it's really really incredible so what else do you got on there, Adam? I, I just put Red Ripper cowpeas. Yeah. And, of course, automatically you see it just start changing. The mixture. It, it calculates it for you. And, and so it's nitrogen, awesome. I can't read that, Matt. What does that one say? I'm a little sitting a little far away. Um, nitrogen fixation, it shows 10. Uh, 10, 10 out of 10. And then Holy for um, grazing, it's 8.4 out of 10. For drought, it's 9.2 out of 10. Um Obviously, since we click two summer species, spring species, frost, it gives us a point one. So it's not very good to plant in frost. But we uh, already know that. That's not our goal. Yeah. So and, it's it's perfect. But if you didn't know that, you, now you do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, so then let's go ahead and let's click another one. And uh, we've already added two. Uh, Iron clay cowpeas. How about that one? Right down below. Yep. Right there? Yep. And that added it to... Basically, uh, what what is how much what's your composition for each legume that you've added in this mixture so far? How many how many seeds are you putting down per acre for each one? I can't Where, really so see totals, that too well. You've got red river cowpeas twenty seven pounds, sun hemp they're suggesting nine point five pounds, and cowpeas twenty seven pounds. And what Adam did he went he went in. At the very start, and put in the amount of acres that he's needing for this mixture. So this is a. I put in six acres. Six acres. He's already got the amount of seed that he needs with this mixture, and the um, gives you the individual mixture, you know, individual species, how much he needs to get. So if he buys it from this greencoverseed.com people, and he knows right there, okay, he can put an order in. Or if he's got a local source or another source that he's going to use, he can go ahead and just say. Okay, this is roughly what I need just to make sure my mixture's pretty good. I know I'm pretty much right on the money when I when I go ahead and go to maybe a local friend or whatever. I'll just say that I'm not blind. It's just the fact that when I moved earlier, I can't see the screen as well. So I'm just clicking. Now we've moved on to grasses. Uh, we He's threw blind. In pearl I've millet with him. Um, so we've threw in pearl millet. That means that bumped our organic matter up a little bit. Um, now it's eight point three out of ten. Um, 
I'm still a little bit low on compaction breaking. And so I know that I'm going to get through there. I'm going to get there with probably a broadleaf. You want uh, a deeper tap root. And so what you so got? Let's look around. And, and when it it gives you when you when you go ahead and hit broadleaf up there at the top, Adam. You see where it says like, go ahead hit add. It gives you the excellent. It gives you basically the best options for you meeting your goals. So it got, let's got click, like a, this is one I wanted to click. Good and marginal. So he's clicking. What do you? Black Ooh, oil sunflower. sunflowers. And that was in the excellent category for him reaching his goals. And that bumped me up a little bit. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and click another one of those broad leaves and buckwheat, another one of my favorites. Um, so I've clicked buckwheat and that bumped me up. Ooh, Hey there. I did some work. Yeah. So now I'm a seven out of 10 on compaction breaking. Um, weed suppression is 8.5 organic matters an eight. Um, I think that that was pretty much all that I, this has plant. I don't even know how many number of different varieties of species that it has to choose from. It doesn't have every single thing I've ever planted before, but it's got it's a bunch. Very, very close. So those fine adjustments, those fine tuned things that you know you can go ahead and, and do yourself, um, kind of on the fly. But this is just a really good tool to use to build these high diverse mixtures, and we we do this. During the fall too, if we and and that's the thing. If you want to try something, if you want to play around with something and see what it does, what you can expect it will do once it's planted, this is the place to do it. And so instead of trying to go ahead and plant it for one year, and then take your soil sample the next spring, that's what eight months. You can go ahead and click on it and change it real quick in this calculator, and it's going to tell you approximately what you may see happen if that plant grows. Um, and the way it should grow and what that's going to do to your soil and, and how it's going to achieve or not achieve your goals that you've already outlined. What else you got clicking on there? I'm sorry, what? what oh, else? oh, we're still doing a podcast. I was... You're diving in. <laughs> no, I, I've clicked on... So let's see. I've got how many? Nine species in this one right now. And what I did was I clicked, I've been just clicking and messing around and, and saw where I've added German millet and Egyptian wheat in the grasses. And I've noticed my compaction breaking going down. Um, so I'm going to remove, I just removed, okay. And I got, I just removed German millet and I watched my compaction breaking go back up and I'll remove Egyptian wheat and it's at 6.6 .6 compaction breaking and 8.2 organic matter. And my organic matter actually went down 0.2, but my compaction breaking went up 6, I, I believe now, or something like that. I forgot what it was before. Now it's 6.6, .6, now it's 7.0, okay. so it went 0.4 yeah. in, this, in this measuring tool. So this kind of tells me, okay, do I am I more focused on organic matter or compaction breaking? Do I want to allow my broad leaves to express more, or do I want more grasses, tall grasses, to build, your organic build more organic matter? matter? And for me, knowing my soil, I want to break up. I want to do some compaction breaking mm -hmm. just because of all the plowing and disking th for the year or through the year. So, well, and and honestly, there's there's pictures of the food plots on the family farm right now on Facebook, and the amount of organic matter that some of them produced uh, during this past fall and the cover crop that's just been terminated actually last week before um, the rains came in, uh, pretty incredible. So that's going to certainly help on your organic matter. You might not be as top of a priority um, this planting just based on the amount of tonnage that was produced during this fall's cover crop. I'm now you're getting down to the nitty-gritty down there, aren't clicking. you? You're still – that's the thing. We, you could spend the rest of the afternoon planting and designing and making these mixes um, and finding that balance, that ratio of, again, is this species helping me achieve my goal – or is it not? I really encourage. Um, I just added to... kale. We're gonna we're gonna start making smoothies out of our food plots <laughs> and move to California. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that that only took it up point one in compaction breaking, but I just wanted to see what Let's it see could what it do. Does. Yeah. And uh, I'll quickly take that back off there and and. Uh, Good. I didn't want a kale smoothie. Yeah. Um, but I added African cabbage, which actually was an excellent in Nebraska's, and mm -hmm. so I went ahead and I will take that off there. And it goes back down. It, it 
increase my organic matter, but it didn't affect my compaction breaking at all. So I know I really don't need to mess mess with it. Right. So, and but while you're while you're trying to fine tune your your package mix there, there's another summary at the end of the the mixture that you're creating right there at the kind of the bottom of the page. And it gives you the pounds per acre. So you've got your mix, and, and I put in for mine, I had a, an acre and a half of this farm, and that's all I was planting. So I got 58.3 pounds per acre that I should be seeding according to this mix. And then it also gives me the seeds per acre um, figure, and that's at 875,000 seeds per acre that I'd be planting in this mixture. Remember, although those are seed sizes of, of anywhere from a sunflower all the way down to... Um, I've got pearl millet in there, so that's a tinier seed. Um, so that's a lot of seeds per acre, but again, I know that this is calculating all the right figures. I could have gone into a store and kind of haphazardly tried to guess my way through it, but with the calculator, I know I'm getting the right amount of seeds per acre in comparison to the other species in the plot. Um, and another cool thing it tells you, and if you get it through this site, I guess it gives you the price, the cost per pound, the seed cost, the mixing cost, the bagging cost. And even in your legumes, it gives you and will add in the inoculant um, for the specific seed. So it gives you a, a per pound price, a per acre price, and then your total if you do choose to use this um, company or site to order your food plot seed through. Um, but it's just, again, it's an incredible tool to build and design and get your soil back to where it needs to get to. And you can meet your goals and objectives just by adding and subtracting and trying these different mixes. And again, I've got, I'm not, I'm not done because I'm going to fiddle fart around with it some more, but I've got nine species right now in my, in my mixture. Um, so it's just a great tool. Adam, where are you at with yours? Uh, I'm just still playing. I already know where I'm at because we've actually ordered most of our seed, but um, I think I was at 10 species. 10 species. And I was nice. trying to, I, I've kind of cleaned the slate and was trying something totally different just to see what else I could come up with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just, I, I think this is, we've talked about planting diverse species and, and you may wonder why or how we come up with that. And then a lot of it's been just through trying to read different things and different Continual articles. education. And this has been a huge part of it. This green cover, greencoverseed.com is just, it's so much, there's so much information on here and, and easy to access, easy to understand information. You can just click and click and click and see, see your, I guess your bars go up and down and go, okay, that didn't really help me as much as I thought it was. I'm going to take that out of the mix. And uh, rather than try and read and talk to different people, you can come here and you can learn a lot just by clicking and playing around with it. So I encourage everyone to, to, to use it. I mean, it, again, it, it's a great tool going to help you out a lot. And, um, I, we're, again, we're, we're using it for our fall mixtures, for our spring mixtures, if, and especially if you've got a, a, a situation on your, your, your farm or your land, or it's a lease and, um, you know, your soil's out of whack. Here's the tool to use to get it back. And, you know, not everything has to be, not all the elements we talked earlier about, you know, the, the minerals and everything in your soil, not everything has to be added to, you don't have to fertilize every single year. You do it on a, you know, there's some, there's some species that are going to mine the nutrients out, um, out of your soil. And, you know, that's been out of touch, out of reach by the, the root system that you guys have been planting, you know, and, and you get a taproot down there that mines a lot of nitrogen, and you plant that, and now you have nitrogen back at the top of the, the soil profile, you don't have to buy nitrogen fertilizer. You don't have to play, put that down. That's time and money saved just by planting the right thing. So we've kind of um, made it a goal for ourselves to correct the amendments, I guess. Not make the amendments the, the, the typical way, but correct the, the mineral deficiencies and everything through planting the right species by cover cropping appropriately. And this is the way, this is how we're doing it by testing and learning. Ahead we would of never get there through planting a monoculture. No. And no. so that's why we're planting these diverse species and really targeting species that, that 
mine different nutrients. So they're not all mining the exact same plant or, or the same mineral. Um, they're not all mining nu- nitrogen. They're not all mining phosphorus. They're all doing something different so they can, they've all got a different root system and, and it's just a way to really amend the soil just through planting different cover crops correct, and, and different crops in general. So I think that, I think we pretty well covered everything on green cover coverseeds.com uh, we just encourage everybody to go check that out because that is such a free and awesome resource for everybody uh, mm-hmm. there's so much to gain there so much to learn and just a lot of fun to be had by playing around if you're a big food plot guy like we are you're gonna love it and i think that wraps us up for this week we've flat covered some different we're topics minerals to flooding to green cover one thing i will say is turkey yeah. season is still going on oh yeah and we're still at it. Hey, I killed a bird. I oh, did. Right. We'll talk. Let's, let's talk about that next week when we wrap up all turkey season because uh, we've got some, honestly, some really, really good weather coming in the next yeah. three days. Wait, we got four days left in the season. We've actually hunted some public ground, which is oh, something that we we wanted to do for a while, and we and we this year we we got to it, and uh, it was a really fun hunt. We didn't kill anything, but we'll talk about it next week and really dive in on the turkey season wrap up. And what do we got? Well, Missouri turkey season wrap up. Missouri turkey season wrap up. We may go somewhere else. May not. Don't know yet. But Missouri turkey season wrap up next week. Anyway, I think that's all. That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you want to see more, check us out at landlegacy.tv or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Take pride in knowing that God has called us in Genesis 2-4 to work and take care of the land. So keeping that in mind, remember to do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God.